Hello listeners and welcome to the show. This is Sam Abrika, the CEO of Nova Money, an AI financial planner designed to help you build financial freedom. In this episode, we will talk about a growing problem that few are aware of, the generational wealth gap between millennials and their parents, and how the current generation is trying to close that financial gap. Today's guest is Martin Quinn, a public relations specialist and a father concerned about the future of his kids. Hello, Martin. Hello, Sam. Morning. Nice to have you with us this morning. No, it's a pleasure to be with you. There's a growing problem in our society that we don't talk much about, and that's the wealth generational gap. Yeah, it seems to be the unspoken elephant in the room. It's interesting because I've, uh, I've, I've seen an Institute of Fiscal Studies report which, uh, which suggests that uh, people in their 30s now are the only are the generation who uh, have less household income than uh, preceding generations. And this goes back to the 1930s. So there is a real, um, real shift that these young people are going to be much poorer, obviously, than their parents and indeed their grandparents. It's a problem because I think we all see that the cost of the real estate keeps increasing. We have inflation and it's less and less affordable for millennials and even worse for Gen Z to, to have the kind of life that our parents had. No. Exactly. I mean, it take a, a couple of things in turn. I mean, for example, you know, in 2001, the average house price in the UK was 156,000. Take it that interest rates around that period were between three and a half percent and five, five, five and a half, six. That so caveat that for a second. But if you bring it back up to the present day, you know, the average house price in 2021 is over 400,000. Now you can appreciate that obviously interest rates are, are very very low, but equally, it's, so the, there is an issue of you know where are these where are these young people? Firstly, where are the, how are they going to save for a house deposit? And secondly, where where are they going to get this money for a house deposit if the cost of living is rising and they're earning less than preceding generations? Well, first I think the trend: millennials are less and less homeowners. They are financially squeezed. So nowadays, people graduate and the tuition fees are increasingly high. It's becoming really absurd, especially in the US. So people graduate and they have a higher and higher amount of debt, which means they start their career and salaries are already not increasing that much. But the amount they need to pay every month for for the student debt is higher and higher. And then even before considering buying, people need to, to have a roof. So renting is getting more expensive. Exactly. And of course, the, I mean, certainly in the UK, the, um, you know, the house price explosion over the last sort of 20 years, as I've just outlined, but it's been fueled by mainly by buy-to-let investors. So there's a massive sort of re- landlord class, if you like. So the cost of rentals is going up and up and up. And in, in most cases, uh, if you can afford to buy a home, uh, I don't have figures to hand, but the, the mortgage payments are vastly less than you would pay renting. But the issue is getting on that housing ladder. So there's, there's that side of the coin. But if we wind it slightly backwards to, you know, these groups of millennials now at this age are, are the ones who will be thinking about starting a family. But partly it's about those kids as they're born, giving them the kind of best start in life. So if we rolled it back to um, uh, 2005, when the Labour government introduced child trust funds, 
in 2005, every child that was born was given £250 by the government, which was topped up at seven years of age with another 250 so to make 500 in total. Now, and that's only for certain families who are on, on low incomes. However, 18 years later, if that initial 250 wasn't touched, in some cases, that figure now is up to £1,000 and in some cases a little bit higher. So there's a whole tranche of, of, of kids who are turning 18 now that have have a small start in life and of course other wealthier parents who have added to that over the years they'll have obviously bigger pots uh, coming to them so that's great i wish i had one thousand pounds when i when i turned 18 <laughs> it would have been a fortune to me <laughs> no it's true but here's the here's the thing that children's trust funds was abolished by the by the um, coalition government but then junior ISAs or they're called jaisas uh, came in which have have tax benefits to them, but they're not the same as a children's trust fund. You know, and yes, you can transfer the children's trust fund to a JISA, and it's all very good. But trouble is that the children that are born now don't have access to that. So if you've got low-income families, where are they getting the start in life? You know, a, a little leg up. They're not getting it. Here's the thing. Just on on uh, last thing on children's trust funds, I think, and even JISAs. I was looking at some research by a company called Beanstalk, who are a junior ISA app. Now, if a child is born today and you put in into their app or into a junior ISA, if you put £25 a month now, in 18 years' time, bearing in mind it went into a share fund in the junior ISA, that figure in 18 years' time, assuming a 5% growth, would be worth £9,000. So if you think 25 quid a month is practically, well, it, it's, it's doable, let's face it, right? 18 years time, £9,000, potentially, if it grows by 5% a year compounds, that is some start in life. That's the magic of the compounded returns. Exactly. I suppose there's two things is there's that for a junior ISA, but then if you switch it on its head, if you were putting that away for yourself into an adult ISA, that would grow the same way. So the thing is, the thing is, everyone everyone thinks, well, you know, I don't have the money, I can't put it away. But if you think about it, well, I'm sure you could find a fiver a week or six pound a week over a month putting it away to actually to build that nest egg. Be it for your child in a JISA, be it an adult ISA, be it a lifetime ISA. All of these, you know, tax benefits that are out there. So certainly, child trust funds, junior ISA whatever it is, help your kids as they're born, give them a start in life and, and a longer term view. There is this concept that investing is risky and if I don't have much money, then investing isn't for me because it's too risky. Whereas I would say it's the total opposite. If you don't have money, it's exactly when you need to invest because that's your only way out. If somebody is rich, it doesn't matter. They have one million sitting in the bank, it grows, it doesn't grow. They still have one million at the end of the year. But if you have nothing, then you need to force yourself to have very good and rigorous habits so that the compounded return will be working for you in the long run. De definitely right. But the point remains is having that starting point. You know, if you park that for a minute and just think about, we were talking, we're talking about your kids and junior ISAs. That's one thing. But then it's trying to build a house deposit in a similar way. The ladder keeps getting pulled away. So prices are going up continually. Rents are so high 
So it's a case of where are these group of youngsters going to get the money to actually build that house deposit? That's a, a massive, massive problem. The second problem is going forward to um, how are they saving for retirement? There was a good work done many years ago when auto-enrollment was brought in. That was a really, really good thing. I think it's if you're 22, you're auto-enrolled in your, into a pension scheme uh, via your employer. But what about the youngsters who don't actually go to university? Uh, what about the ones who join the workplace straight away? And I'm thinking of apprenticeships who are vogue now, or even just after A-levels going straight into the workplace. There's roughly a four-year gap there where they're not paying into a pension and they're not mandated to pay into a pension. So if you think of the whole compound aspect, if those youngsters were forced into auto-enrollment at 16 or 18, that's an extra four years of, of pension contributions that would compound. And as we know, over many years, that four years, even at small amounts of money, would still grow. I think that the government have missed a trick there by starting it at 22. I think that in practice, it's hard. So I remember when I started working, um, I started to work in the in the big four. The our starting salaries, my starting salary was lower than people who got hired two years or three years ago, and even worse than that, when I was promoted from analyst to senior analyst, the starting salary of the analyst were decreased. Like they were decreasing the salaries year after year of the analyst to the point where. We, we really were struggling to, to, to hire juniors, but it, it was a global strategy. So when the rent is increasing, when the cost of education is increasing, when people now need to, to overbid more and more on the degrees, then of course, people are not going to, to care about their retirement when they start working at 21, 23. And they will try to minimize as much as possible any pension fund contribution because it's so far away. Their concern is, where can I even get the money to to pay for my flat accommodation, repay my debt, and well, start to to enjoy life a little. But that's the thing, you see. Of course, if if it was mandated by the government that you know, you know, I, I don't even, I can't even think of a figure. Let's say it was two percent that government were, were paying. For example, if you're eighteen, two percent into your pension that's locked in that you can't opt out. That you're starting end of story, can't be touched then, in fact, the whole idea of opting out in its entirety anyway, because we're going to get to a stage in, even when I retire in, in 18, 20 years' time, the current state pension is £197. God knows what it's going to be in 20 years' time. Indeed, what the retirement age is going to be anyway. It keeps going up and up and up. But the point is, when the Generation Zs and the Millennials now, when they reach retirement age, is there going to be a state pension? So there is this ticking time bomb, if you like, that not really being addressed. I mean, yes, great that we've got auto enrollment and more people are paying into a pension. That's fantastic. But but they're not paying enough into a pension. And you try and explain to a 20-year-old or a 22-year-old why a pension is important. And they're going to just glass over. They, they can't fathom 40 or 50 years time. So how does, does the industry make that important? When, as you've mentioned, Sam, there are other priorities. Getting on the housing ladder, uh, paring down their university debt and just the day-to-day living. Um, I think people will naturally be much more focused on solving the current problem than their retirement problem for a very old self that they don't even know if they will be alive in yeah. 40 years. And so I'm the CEO of Nova Money and we, we have employees. 
and some of our employees just decide to opt out from the pension. So I, I was a, a bit surprised because as a company, we, we, we're also contributing and if they opt out from their part, we are also opting, they are also opting out from the company's contribution. And even though explaining and make, making sure they 100% understand the impact of opting out from their pension contribution, they still actively decide to opt out why because because they need the cash now yeah and look i mean i don't know what to say i mean it, it you can't in some respects you can't blame them you know because they need the ready cash now you know especially living in any of the cities well living anywhere is expensive but equally if you're in london manchester birmingham wherever it might be you know city center rents are are colossal so you can't blame them they do have other priorities but i think it i think the fault lies with the government where they just need joined up thinking how do we increase how do we get more pension contributions? One of the problem of the pension contribution, it doesn't seem like tangible, like if it was invested in any in, in, in ISO account. So the, the question uh, I'm asked is, okay, so I'm going to invest that on my pension fund and the company will also do its contribution. But what if I wanted to use the money? What if I want to buy a house? then obviously it's not available for, for withdrawal. Exactly. It's away until until that retirement. And yeah, I mean, that is a problem. I mean, is, does a, is a reform needed where, you know, maybe at certain times in your life you are able to draw down from that pension for certain reasons? I mean, you know, the obvious one would be be able to draw out so many thousand for a house deposit. I don't know. The other question is, you know, the, there's lots of... Um, Lots of the banks and building societies now are talking about 40-year mortgages. You know, the issue there is if you're lucky enough to get a mortgage and, and to get a decent deal on the rate, you know, 25-year mortgages were the norm, 2025, but suddenly 40 years. You know, the other question is, if you are in your 60s, are you going to be paying, I mean, or your 70s even, who's going to be paying your, who's going to be paying your mortgage repayments at 70? I mean, who's going to be working at 70? your retirement because you have contributed <laughs> your entire life <laughs> exactly but this is it i mean who's going to be uh, in fair in fairness who's going to be employed at 70 um if you're lucky enough to to be being able to pay off your mortgage still i get the feeling that these 40-year mortgages is going to end up you, you're going to almost pass that mortgage down to generations you know to your children so in, in effect all you're doing is yes there may be equity in the house no doubt but the the mortgage debt, if you like, is moving moving through the generations. So I'm not so sure about 40-year mortgages, really, to be honest. I think the I think the key would be if you can afford it, is to pay down your interest. And you know there are various a new startup called uh, Sprive who are actively looking at that to pay down down your mortgage repayments. If you're lucky enough to get there, that is. I think all of that are signal that our generation is just financially squeezed. So be before, there used to be this idea that the next generation will be better off. 50 years ago, 90% of, of the new generation were earning more and having better lifestyle than their, their parents. It, it wasn't the concern. Now, half of us will earn less, are earning less than our parents at the same age. And we have such a gap where there's less than 6% of the wealth, of the total wealth owned by millennials. It's mostly concentrated on Gen X, boomers, and the, the silent generation. And that's a wealth gap that we never talk about. Because I remember when I started my career, 
we all had gr uh, great hopes. Oh yeah, we, we, we have finally graduated. We have done the hardest. Well, actually we haven't done the hardest because then when you start in the job market, there are less promotion opportunities. Uh, there are less salary increase. We earn less than the, 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 the prior and not, not even prior generation, just people who were hired three, three years ago. It all seems that all the stars are aligning against us and everything is just getting harder. I think, to be honest, technology may come to our rescue. And if you think of the, 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 the vast improvements in open banking, being able to, to understand our transactions, you guys do at Nova, Paul, you know, being able to understand where you could be frivolously spending your money on understanding your spending habits, smarter saving, smarter investing. Never before is there, in other words, there's, there's a whole raft of data apps out there that where you can you know understand the patterns of behavior potentially so what i'm trying to say is i, I don't think it's all doom and gloom i mean there are there are there are hopefully some signs that uh, or ways that you can spend less save better and you know and and save money so it's not darker for everybody what, what's happening at the moment is there's a polarization of the, the new, new generation there's a portion of Gen Z and millennials who are getting better and better off. And then there's the, the majority of them who are getting worse and worse off. And the main difference between them are their behaviors and their financial education or what yeah. we call their money mindset. And technology is a two-sided coin. Yes, there's a lot of data. We can understand uh, much better people and their behaviors. But who is using the most of these data? It's the tech companies. And what's their purpose? Is to push advertising and push short-term short consumption. So what we do is we're trying to use the, these data to help people make better and smarter financial decisions. But when you look at, for example, our resources compared to all the resources of the tech companies, we are, we, we are just a True, tiny but fraction. if you think about it, you know, you, you are able to laser focus in on a certain area, you know, and are Google or are Amazon eventually going to move into the into the finance space? They, they probably will at some point, if they're not really thinking about it already. But there, there are a whole range of financial apps out there, yourselves included, who can give an individual full view of all their money. So in term, via open banking, so you're, you can link all your credit cards, all your savings accounts, your current accounts, your fingertips. You know exactly where you are, Annie moment in time now there will be a stage where i'm sure that as i said amazon google apple whatever will march into this arena and they're probably doing it already but the point is those that are already playing in in this area uh, have a decent head start i do see more and more people leveraging open banking to create product and services but it doesn't mean that uh, financial services is here to to help to help people being their their wealth and their financial freedom. And actually, if you look at the fastest growing financial services, it's Klarna, Buy Now, Pay Later, faster credit, easier credit, more credit. Why? Because they all try to remove the friction. They all try to to, to remove our little daily frustration that we feel. And it used to be okay in the past to have like frustration in life and. You would talk to the to your friend and a relative, but nowadays technology made it easier. You have a problem, okay? Change your mind on Amazon. You don't have the money, that's fine. Free credit, so easy. All the application is is just made um, 
just made automatic for you. And th that's why the correlation between technology progress and financial well-being uh, isn't working. And actually, it's quite the opposite. The more technology progress, the worse off it is for, for most people. On the bright side, what we're noticing is for the, those who want to, to really take control of their finances and invest in their financial education and try to do the right thing, then there are more tools and more free there education than ever. Uh, newcomers to this area. I mean, one is a is the financial app Hyperjar, for example, and you may have heard of them. That's where you can put your money into certain jars, and these jars are from retailers. So, for example, Little via uh, Hyperjar. So, pot potentially, you put a hundred pounds into your Little jar, which is committing spending to go to Little. Hyperjar will pay you um, an annual interest rate of 4.8% on the balance within that. So the good point about that is if you were regularly going to little whatever balance you've got in there, you'd go use your Hyperjar card from your little jar, you get 4.8% on that balance. So that's quite a cool little way of way way of uh, Yeah. That's very interesting. How do they get how do they manage to pay 4.8% because even the biggest bank they they, they can't even yeah. pay 1% yeah. Look, at the I, moment. I don't know how the finances how they're doing it. But there's a, certainly an interesting concept to, to follow. So what I'm saying is there, is there is innovation all across financial services. And it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't seem to be the incumbent banks that it's coming from. It seems to be the challenger brands that are coming out. The, and the reason it's the challenger brands simply is, I, I think, is it's to do with the challenger brands don't have the legacy infrastructure problems like all the high street branches and all the legacy IT that comes with it. There's none of that to worry about. They're just starting from scratch via open banking and putting it all together. It's always easier to innovate when you it start from indeed. a blank sheet. But you know what it what it does bring us on to though is youngsters are thinking right. So where can I get? Where can I invest? Where can I get quick returns? And it it brings us into the crypto area from record highs from Bitcoin, for example, in February. But it went up last week a little bit, but it's but we're still talking about from the high this year, Bitcoin is down roughly fifty percent. So and youngsters are you know, Generation Z and millennials, well more Generation Z probably than millennials, are getting attracted for attracted to quick returns. So um and, and that is a that is a real worry. It's also a byproduct of the environment because now we are financially squeezed. Buying a house is just seems way too hard for the vast majority of us, especially if, if we don't have a quick start coming from our parents. The only way out, the only like area of of hope to to close this generation generational wealth gap, um, is to go on, on the cryptocurrencies, and and it works. If you look at GME, if you look at Bitcoin, this is how now uh, the the new generation is closing the wealth gap with their parents, with their grandparents. The question is, for how long it will with work? Crypto, I mean, arguably, uh, Elon Musk uh, kind of, what am I looking for? Uh, you know, manipulating the market over the last few weeks and saying that he'd take Bitcoin to buy his cars and then saying, no, he's not going to do it. And then a tweet from him and it sends the price hairwire. So there's that issue. The other issue, of course, is that... Uh, the Advertising Standards Authority have uh, have ruled against uh, the company uh, Luno, for example. So they had an advert on the London Underground, which basically stated, if you're seeing Bitcoin, now is the time to buy. Now, but the issue, of course, is that 
cryptocurrencies are not regulated by the FCA and they're not part of the financial services compensation scheme. So the point we're saying is that there was no risk warning at all on their adverts. So they they ruled against them. But what we are seeing is that there's a lot of the industry, and I say by, by industry, I mean not the crypto industry, but equally the, the, the financial services industry are really going strong against against crypto simply because of the volatility. And I mean, you know, the likes of Scottish Friendly, the, the, the that Scottish Mutual uh, are going out very strongly. AJ Bell are going very strongly. So lots, lots, uh, lots are against it. But there's one quote I wouldn't mind giving you is uh, from uh, Lord Lee of Trafford. Now, he is the first ever uh, ISA millionaire, or he's quoted as being the first ever ISA millionaire. His quote on Bitcoin is this. My concern is that those with very limited resources and knowledge are tempted into this highly volatile area. And at the very least, they need to be warned of the risks. They could lose everything. So well, my take on it is not that I'm against crypto per se, but when industry experts and, and people like Lord Lee, who've, who's got a long history of investing for growth, if that's what they're saying, I'm just going to tread ever so carefully because I am worried that like any kind of speculation, the youngsters are going in looking for a quick return. But let's say Bitcoin falls another 30%, you know, their, their thousand pound that they've managed to squirrel away, you know, is suddenly worth 300 or, or whatever. That does worry me personally. I think the, the cryptocurrency space is extremely polarized. On one side, there are all those who believe this is the currency of the future. Screw the central bank, screw the system, they screwed us. We're now going to bypass and we're going to recreate the gold rush. So if you look at the, the crypto or the socio-dynamics, it's very similar to the gold rush that happened, well, mm. almost a century ago. And, and a lot of them believe very strongly, this is the future of the currency. And we're going to create our generational wealth gap like that. We can't buy houses. It's too expensive. We can't get mortgages. I don't care. I'm going to be a millionaire in cryptocurrency and yeah, I'll I buy Yeah, I see cash. that point. But the issue is that, well, there's two main issues. The price volatility is, is, is absolutely mental. And then the second, the second issue, certainly for millennials and Generation Z, is, that, is the fact that the amount of energy it takes to mine a Bitcoin is unbelievable. So I don't think it sits particularly well with with the aspirations of generation z for sustainability and you know sort of clean energy so i mean no, all of that in the environment so i don't know whether you know those that don't care about the amount of energy production this is taking is one thing but i think there'd be a whole sway of people that go do you know what it doesn't stack up now if cryptocurrencies can get to a stage where they don't need to take all this power to mine one you know and just talk about that you know that is one thing but it'll be interesting longer term to see the take up never mind the volatility but just to see how much is actually how much does flow in from generation z and we know it's quite a lot but i wonder will it will that maintain i i think that there are a lot of concerns about crypto i was initially involved mm. in the crypto space and the first crypto adopters were were typically the innovators. So they're perfectly comfortable with high risk, high reward. They quite understood the risk. They would sleep quite well even if they, they lost all their money. And they knew it was something quite risky and experimental. The problem is now it has become so mainstream that 
people are appealed to the crypto because they see the return and they see that, oh, is it the new gold rush? Is it going to be 100k worth of Bitcoin by the end of the year, 200k, 1 million? And it's all FOMO based. However, my experience working in the in the markets for four years told me one thing. Whenever there is a non-regulated financial market, uh, there will be manipulation and there will be people taking advantage of the system. For example, there uh, there's this DeFi platform and the, the promise was you, you're going to deposit your cryptocurrencies with us. Screw the system and the banks, they don't pay you an interest rate. We're going to pay you 8%, 10% interest rate on whatever you deposit with us. Uh, the only problem was it was a scam. Mm. It was a Ponzi scheme. The only way they could pay that is by having more people depositing. And when there was the, the crypto crash and people were withdrawing their crypto, they couldn't repay it. They closed it and they, they even had the, they put, oh, we scammed you and you can't do anything about it because it's not regulated. And the second problem is it doesn't scale at the moment. It's all very theoretical. Central banks are not using Bitcoin as a, as a reserve. Companies, okay, maybe Tesla did, but actually they, they, they kind of came back. And if somebody, if a CEO of a company would have done that in a regulated market, he would be investigated by the SEC for market manipulation. And these are serious allegations. But because the, the whole crypto space isn't regulated, there are market manipulation all over the place. I remember in the, in the early days when I was looking at the, all the alternative coins and how they were traded and all the arbitrage opportunities, it was obvious that the amount of market manipulation that was there on a daily basis means that some people will take advantage of the mass because they're manipulating it and they will drive the price up to make it look like, oh yeah, it's a trend, let's go for it. And when everybody is following the trend, they're going to sell and, they, and they're going to tank the coin. And unfortunately, these are the risks that a lot of people are taking at the moment. And uh, my concern is, it's not that people are taking high risk. It's people who are not that sophisticated and don't fully understand the, or the manipulation of the depths they are on the majority of the coins are taking this risk. Because the, the first people, the first adopters, they were kind of aware. They are very, they are very risk tolerant. They are totally fine with that. But now we have a, I hear a lot of people who are not particularly technical, they're not really interested in the, the blockchain and how it works and all the technicalities. They just think it's the next gold rush. And there are risks. I think the argument is that you've probably missed the rush. I think the rush, the, yeah, the, the rush might be over. But <laughs> I think, I think the, um, the bottom line that I think is, is with any investing is, uh, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, as the old saying goes, but uh, is is diversifying. If you do want to put something into cryptos or Bitcoin is kind of, you know, limit your exposure potentially to maybe 10% of, of, of your total. Mix some in shares, mix some in some, you know, some funds, potentially uh, some growth funds, you know, and, and yes, have and, and obviously have some do get yourself an ISA and uh you know, potentially a stocks and shares ISA as well. So, you know, it's diversifying the portfolio. I mean, don't have, have it all in crypto. I mean, yes, it, great. It goes up by 20, 30%, but equally a day later, it can go down. It can equally go down that far. So yeah, that'd be my uh, final thoughts on, on crypto. But I, yes, I can see the attractions, you know, definitely. If it's to get, you know, if it's to get the house deposit, you know, if it's to, uh, it's to try and fund your retirement, yeah, it's uh, 
I can see. But diversification, I think, is is the only way to do it. Diversification is key, and there's one interesting uh, fact on that. The way that most retail investors manage and invest is actually the opposite way that all the, the banks are doing. So most people, they they become emotionally attached to oh, the Bitcoin or the Ethereum or any, and they, they would go all in there. Whereas a professional investor would diversify and would look at each investment as a risk reward. And yes, maybe there's a trend, but what's the downside? And is the risk reward worth it to make that investment? And if yes, how much I will invest? And actually, that's the key of making money in the long term. Never put all your eggs in the same basket because you never know what can happen and try to diversify. But the problem is when you see all the, the current return on the cryptocurrencies, how do you make it, how do you make attractive an ISA account? It's, it sounds just so boring. So the thing is, it's not, not essentially boring because on the stocks and shares ISA, you can choose the stocks that you want to buy as simple as that so you could you know you've got for example with i don't know hargreaves lansdowne or whatever you've got pick of the foot c350 foot c100 you can buy unit trust you can buy funds do what you could do what you like i mean you know that is that is the beauty of it but like i said at the start it's all well and good if it goes up 30 percent and then suddenly it comes down 40 percent so and if you buy in at the wrong time if you buy in at the high point and there's another crash, you know, we're not talking about wiping out everything, but, you know, as like I use that £1,000 analogy, suddenly £1,000 drops by 50%, you've got 500 quid. Now, had that, it would take an awful lot for one share to drop by 50%. You'd have, you'd have to be really unlucky to, to have a share that, that drops in value by that much, right? So that, that's my take on it. Yes, if you feel you want to, go down that route so i'm not look i'm not against bitcoin per se but i do worry about the fluctuations martin could you tell us just a, a quick word before before we leave how how do you allocate your investments well i basically choose it on um i've always been an avid reader so i've always followed the city pages ever since i was about 16 years of age and one of the greatest ways of doing it actually is Bizarrely, if you work in an industry, it doesn't really work now so much, but if you work in an industry like you work in retail or you work in banking, you will know certain things about the industry you're in. So, for example, if you worked in retail or food retail, you tend to know the winners and the losers very quickly. And if you work for your own particular company, you'll know if it's doing well or if it's doing badly or not. So, you know, everyone talks about share tips and sort of stock tips. Sometimes the only way you will know is if you're in it yourself and you will know what to back, if that makes sense. Yeah, doing your own research is the answer and having a bit of an insight potentially in the industry that you're in. And don't, awesome. pay, don't pay too much attention to stock tips. Too much, you know, especially from the newspapers. And if you don't have any insight or any hidden information, then your best bet is just to invest in ETF. It will be diversified and you don't need to, to worry about it too much. Exactly. And that's what I think uh, the vast majority of people who don't want to, to have headache about investment should do. Automate your investment on ETF and you'll be better off in the long run. Exactly. Awesome. Martin, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this episode enjoyable, inspiring and educational. 
in this era of instant gratification, it is more important than ever to train our delayed gratification muscle. So keep learning, keep improving by 1% every day. You may not see the results right now, but this is a secret of all the successful people I've met. Please help me spread financial education by sharing this podcast with your friends and community. I would love it if you could also leave us a review. It really helps the show. Now, I would like you to forget about all the advertising that is being pushed to us on a daily basis and think about your personal financial goals. What do you really want to achieve with your money? If you have financial objectives, then check out the Nova Money app. Nova is an AI that will show you how to set financial goals and how to achieve them. A plan is only useful if you can follow it. That's why Nova will send you daily motivational messages to give you the strength to ignore the daily temptations of spending money and stay focused on your goals. Like other budgeting apps, Nova connects all your bank accounts in one place to give you the full picture. The difference is that the Nova AI will do all the budgeting and tracking for you. The second difference is that unlike many free personal finance apps, we don't sell users data. All your data is encrypted and will remain completely private. Make sure that you're investing in your financial education. Make sure that you're building your financial freedom. And I'll speak to you in the next episode.